Can you guys hear me? Yes. Awesome. This thing's working. It's so good to see you all from this perspective. I can see everybody's faces, so that's a, it's a, it's a new thing. It's great. So, most of you this morning probably already know my name is Matthew, Matthew Bronson. Uh, you probably know that I grew up in Salinas, California. You also probably know that I have a tendency to talk very fast, and I'm really going to try this morning just to try to Try to slow down, and so um, something you may, thank you, thank you, <laughs> something you may not have known, um, I studied archaeology, actually, originally. I was studying Near Eastern archaeology at a Southern Adventist University. I, I was doing that for several years uh, until I was midway through my degree, and I was just very convicted to do this uh, specific Bible work program, and that was the first one I had done, and um, it was actually the hardest thing in the world to break my plan. I was going to get my doctorate by age 26. I, I was doing a double major and a minor with studying abroad in four years. I had my plan and my track set. And so it was a big deal for me to stop, stop it all and, and take some time out. But, you know, I ended up doing that program. I went back to school and I just wasn't satisfied not putting it into practice. I had learned those things, but I wasn't putting it into practice. And so um, although this isn't true for everyone, just in my specific case, I think God was calling me and I, I ended up doing um, a student missionary program in, in Peru. I did literature evangelism and Bible work and, and now some health work here in the Central California Conference. And um, I may not still have my degree. I'm actually almost done by the grace of God, finishing up online. Um, but you know, I don't regret anything where God has led me. Uh, I look back and God has been good. And I can only thank him for that. And so... And so this morning, I just want to share with you guys something that I really feel like God has shown me and been teaching me, and I just pray it would be a blessing for you guys. Why don't we start uh, with prayer before we begin this morning? Father, uh, Lord, you know that um, I need this message perhaps more than anyone else. Lord, I just ask uh, for your Holy Spirit. Uh, give each of us your Holy Spirit, uh, and I pray that it wouldn't be about us that it wouldn't be about me, uh, that it would be about Jesus this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I wanted to begin by sharing with you guys something this morning that is a little bit ridiculous. Like, it's going to sound a little bit ridiculous, but uh, I, just, I just promise, like, it, I, have, I have a point, you know, a little bit. And so, have you guys heard of celebrity baby names? Like, maybe this was, like, 10 years ago, 15 years ago or something, but... Some of these weird names, like, have you guys heard of those maybe? Like a few of us here? Um, these are real names. Apple, to name their child Apple. Uh, I found one, Kal-El, that's like Superman. Like that's, it's kind of out there. And it makes me think, it makes me just wonder why. Like why do they go out of their way to kind of do that? Maybe it's to be unique or, or just maybe to be independent. Um, but I am not joking when I share some of these names. I, I took the, uh, the privilege, or I, I took the, you know, opportunity to make a list. I compiled a little list of my favorites. So are you ready for this? You know, some parents, they do some funny things. They, they have the last name James, so they name their son James. So his name is James James. I, I heard you're not supposed to do that, like in a psychology book or something. You're not supposed to do that to your kids. There's triplets. They name the first one Hope, uh, Faith. They name the first one Faith. They name the second one Hope. And the third? Kevin. They named him Kevin. <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to be Kevin, you know, I mean, but uh, some others, Egypt, Danish, Cheese, Leviathan, that's my favorite, I think. They, these are out there names, Hippo, Jedi, Google, Burger, 
ESPN, for some sports fans. So why on earth am I telling you guys this? Um, it's just, I guess, just to get us thinking about how names, these, like why, why do these names seem strange to us? They seem strange to us because they're not like real names, right? So, I mean, names have to come from somewhere though, right? And so a lot of you may know that our names, you know, they, they tend to have a certain meaning, like originally back in, in another language, you know, Matthew, it comes from like the Greek Matthios, it was from the Hebrew Matitiahu, it's gift of God, you know, it had a meaning. But that's just the point, you know, originally, back then, uh, in the Hebrew way of thinking uh, of names, uh, they had an actual meaning. So let's look at an example, like uh, Dan, you've heard of the tribe of Dan maybe? That was someone's name. Now it's more of a nickname. Dan, it means judge in, in Hebrew. So back then, they would name their kid Judge. That's kind of interesting, right, to think about? So Daniel, Dani is my judge. Daniel, it's God is my judge. And so they, like when his mother named him that, when his mother called him, it's like, God is my judge, come here, come here. It was, it's kind of weird to think about, right? Their names, it had like a literal meaning. And so today, I just thought we'd all look at uh, the significance of biblical names. What, what, is, um, what do names mean? And just the deep significance that the Bible gives it, gives it uh, in his word. And so we'll look into the insights of some, of, uh, some men in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, we'll just learn some things. Are you guys ready? All right, fasten your proverbial seatbelts. Let's go to, oh, you don't have to go to this one if you don't want. I'm going to turn to Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, we're going to look at just kind of the first thing. I was going to look at maybe three things about names in the Bible. So we're also going to look at place names as well, just for this first part, just by way of introduction. The first thing that is true about names is that they are descriptive. They, they often revealed history, right? So this is the story of Achan. This is after Jericho. You know who fought the Battle of Jericho? Thank you, thank you. Yeah, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, right? Uh, the, the walls fell. God said specifically with this one city, he said, you know, take everything in it. Don't, don't take the plunder, but just take it and uh, give it to me. It's like an offering. Like he had specific instructions, actually just with this one city. But Achan, when he saw things, he saw silver, he saw, he saw a garment, he saw things that he wanted. And to him, the command, it just didn't, it didn't matter to him. It didn't matter. And so he hid it himself and um, and he ended up trying to hide it and lie about it to everybody. And um, God wasn't able to bless them because he had gone out of his way like that. And so if you look with me, if you're there, Joshua 7, verse 26. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. And so when they would come upon a place, it's called the Valley of Achor, that meant the Valley of Trouble. Maybe your footnotes in your Bible say that. And so people would come to a place, it always had that name, ever after. Um, but it, it told a story. It was descriptive. Do you guys see that? It was descriptive. Um, the city of Joppa, it, it's uh, Hebrew, Yafe. it means beautiful. And it's on the coast, it's a beautiful place. It's just simply something descriptive. Second is that it communicates meaning. Like it communicates like a deep kind of meaning in Isaiah chapter 8. You don't have to turn to this one either. We'll all turn to the next one. But if you want to see the longest name in all of the Bible, it's found right here in, in Isaiah chapter 8. And in verse 1, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll 
and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That is the longest name in the Bible. Just if you ever wanted to know that. Uh, it means, it basically, um, God goes to explain how uh, judgment is going to come to the people. And um, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, the name, it, it means uh, swift, the speedy, um, quick, like the, the booty, the treasure. Like basically talking about how by the time this kid grows up, like already the, the country will be spoiled. Like um, um, a foreign invader will come. Like it was, it was a prophecy, really. So what made Isaiah name his son this? Isaiah, his name had a meaning. Uh, he gave his son a name, a very long name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, like every time they called him. I wonder if he had a nickname, you know, like something, something to shorten that. But um, names, they communicated something, especially the son, yeah, especially the son of a prophet, right? Like it was actually something having to do with his ministry, like it had a significance to it. But one last thing that I'd really like to dwell the most on for our time this morning. Uh, the most important thing I believe that we learn from biblical names uh, is something we find, if you'll all turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. So this is after the Ten Commandments were given. And this is after Moses went up and people, uh, they, they made a, a false god, right? They had a golden calf. And uh, while Moses was there and he came back down with the Ten Commandments and, uh, and he saw what they were doing and he took them and he smashed them and he, uh, he ends up saying he's going to go back up to God on the mountain. He's going to intercede for the people. It's actually really beautiful to read. He says, Lord, blot my name out. If you just, just forgive them, just forgive them. The way Moses pleaded for the people is really beautiful. Um, but in Exodus 33, Moses says something in verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. And he said, please show me your glory. In verse 19, and he, then he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the what? The name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on him I will have compassion. All right, skip down. Moses, he, he follows God's instructions. He takes the tablets up. And in verse 5 of chapter 34, 34 verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses, he gets down and he bows down. What we see here is like a little equation here. Um, Moses prays to God, show me your glory. And God, he does something. He shows him his glory, his name, and his character. And this is something that's true for specifically for God. God's glory is his character. Isn't that beautiful? God's glory, it's his character. Uh, and his name, it's his character. And that's, I wanted to take us here just because that's a beautiful concept. But also, just to understand what we're going to be looking at the most this morning, that name, a name in the Bible, they communicate life. It, it, was, um, it was someone's character. It was who they were. It just had this deep significance to the Hebrew mind. And so that's what we're going to look at, specifically with the lives of some men in the Bible. And so... Let's all turn to 
One book back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 15 this morning. This is a story I don't feel is often um, read or talked about or preached, but uh, when I read it and I, I began to understand it, it was so beautiful to me. And I want to share that with you today. Genesis chapter 15. And if you are there, do me a favor and say something like, I'm there. Awesome, we're all there. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, in the, um, in the ancient Near East, how important was it to have that, that firstborn son, right? Just culturally speaking, this was a big deal for them. Um, it was to pass on your name, you know? It was, it was to pass on your family name. And uh, to them, that was like everything. And archaeologically, I don't believe you need archaeology. I, I just want to give a, a preface. I don't believe you need archaeology to understand God's word. But there are some interesting things you can learn uh, by looking at archaeology and comparing it with the Bible. For example, um, what was the reason that Abraham was having a servant be his heir? What was the reason? Right, he had no children, and so his wife Sarai, she was, she was barren, right? Yeah. It's interesting, Abraham came from Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, and uh, archaeologically, like these, these archaeologists, they dig it's actually a lot of fun, believe it or not. It actually is. Uh, but they dig and they find these things, they find these tablets, and they eventually learn how to read these tablets. And um, they study the laws of the land. Like, we actually know what the laws were in Ur. And did you know that in Ur, if your wife was unable to produce a child, it was well within your right to divorce her in that society. We found their laws. So what does that mean about Abraham? Abraham genuinely loved Sarai. Isn't that interesting? Like, we could just get that kind of insight. He could have left her, and, you know, she, she didn't produce any child. They were old. He could have divorced her. He could have found someone else. But um, he took her with him, uh, and he, he, he stayed married to her. So you get interesting insights, just like that. Um, I'm getting distracted. Verse 4, look with me in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, to Abram, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to, them, to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is an amazing uh, part that I can't help but just get sidetracked really quickly here. Um, if you want to keep your finger there and look at Romans 4 with me, I'm just going to read it to you very quickly here. Romans 4, Paul talks about this, this exact story, and he quotes it. I'm going to start in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls things which do not exist as though they did. This is a beautiful truth about God. I like it how it's put in the King James, actually. God calls things that are not as though they were. And that's actually true for each and every one of our lives. That's something that God does. He doesn't look at us how we are, but how we can be. Isn't that beautiful? In verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he did become the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, at the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Here, to me, is the most clear, the clearest manifestation of, like, what is faith? A definition. To Abraham, although all circumstances, it did not appear possible, Abraham looked back. He looked back on his past experience and he saw, you know, God, you called me out of the land where I was. I had no idea where I was going, but you've provided for every one of my needs. Everything you've told me so far has been true and I'm going to trust you here too. He said, you know, it doesn't look like I can have a kid and you've given me nothing, but I'm going to trust you. They're going to be like the stars in the sky. Like you can't even count them. And he trusted God and that is what was righteousness. Like that is how he received righteousness. Um, many, many years later, throughout all the ages, people have thought, you know, to work, to, to, to be righteous is to be good, but the only biblical definition for righteousness is believing what God says. Although it doesn't look like it, to trust him. You know what? God, you've been trustworthy so far in my life. I'm going to keep trusting you now. Genesis 15, verse, we're in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? He asks God this. And then what happens next is going to be a little bit strange, but if you look with me in verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the bird in two. Okay, and we read this in today's society, and we say, what is going on? What, what, what? Where did that come from? Why, why cutting? Why killing? Okay, so this is one example that, um, where archaeology kind of comes in handy. However, I really do believe everything necessary for understanding God's word, it's right here. Uh, you can actually see it elsewhere throughout the Bible. Um, you can actually use it explaining the Bible. Uh, to make a covenant in Hebrew, in the Bible that you, you yourselves hold in your hands, that you're reading, It literally says in Hebrew to cut a covenant. And that doesn't make sense to us, but in Hebrew it made perfect sense. When two men wanted to make a covenant, and that's like a a deal, right? A contract, like a a promise. It's this relational thing. You two come together and you say, you know, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this, it's going to be a thing. That is a covenant. And so what would happen is they would bring these animals that we just listed of a certain age, and yes, they'd kill it. It's it's really bad. It's terrible. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to watch it. It's really gory, you know? But they'd cut them down the middle. And they'd split them on each side, except for the birds. They'd just kill the birds and leave them there. And then uh, what would happen is each party would walk through between the pieces. And that was their way of confirming the covenant. It was them saying, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, then let me become like one of these animals. That was their word. Their word was so, it was, to them it it meant something. And they they would do this for that reason. They would walk between the pieces and they would say, if I don't fulfill my end, um, then, then let me be like one of these animals then that's what's going to be the case. If we pay careful attention to the story, verses 11, 12, on 13 and onward. So Abraham brought these pieces, he cut them. Verse 11, notice with me something interesting. And when the, uh, the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now when the what? The sun was going down, okay, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and a great darkness fell upon him. God then speaks to him and he says, okay, look, in this land, your people, like, they're, they're not going to have it immediately. 
They're going to be taken as slaves 400 years, but afterwards I'll bring them back. They'll come back with possessions. Trust me. Uh, that's what happens. However, uh, I notice something. He does this, right? God asks him to do it. Abraham, he separates the pieces, but then he waits. He waits and he, he doesn't walk through it. He's like thinking. It's like he, to me, what, it, what I perceive Abraham doing here is he's really weighing what's really going on, the importance of this, what's really going on. And he's not willing to not do it. When the vultures come, he's like, no, 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 get away, get away, away. And he's waiting all the way until the sun starts to go down. And the sun goes down, and, and um, as it begins to go down, God, he reveals this to Abram. And if you look in verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, then behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, um, he gave them that land. What's amazing to me is this symbol, this sign of God um, actually going through the pieces. So do you catch what's going on here? Abraham separates the pieces and he doesn't walk through it. He's like weighing this decision and who makes the first move? God actually walks between the pieces. God says, if I do not fulfill my word to you, then let me become like one of these animals. And that's God's word to us. God's word is that sure. Amen. He is so sure of his promise to you that he can make promises like that. There's so many beautiful things that you can get out of this, really just thinking about it. Um, in a sense, Jesus was willing to become like them for us. It's beautiful. But look what happens next in the story. There are no chapter divisions originally in the Bible. When you go reading, you go right on through to Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, Abram's wife, excuse me, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. She kind of blames God with it, right? Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham, he just goes along with it. He heeds the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband to be Abram's wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. Um, and what happened next? Hagar, she has a child, right? And then she despised Sarai. Like, they, they don't get along. And then when you look in verse, uh, verse uh, 5, Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave you my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. And so there's a big mess that comes out of this, right? God had promised something, but instead they tried to just make it happen themselves. This is why when you read in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about Hagar being symbolic of, of uh, keeping the law through your own efforts, and Sarai is, is symbolic of trusting God, God's word in you. That, that's where this symbolism comes from. And so, if you look with me, um, really, that's actually the cause of the, all the chaos in the Middle East today, you know? They actually, they go back to this one point. Um, people of the Jewish religion say we are the blessed people and um, people who are uh, Muslim, they, they think that they're children of Is Ishmael and they say, no, we're the firstborn. We're the firstborn son. The blessing is ours. And, and to this day, they hate each other, to this day. Um, little did Abraham know, you know, that that would happen. Like just from one, one uh, simple mistake that it would grow into something like that. He never could have known. But watch with me in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 17. Question, did Abraham keep his end of the covenant or did he not? He didn't, right? He broke his side. He didn't trust God for this to happen. He tried to make it happen himself. Look with me in chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am Almighty God. Walk before me 
and be blameless. You see, by the rules of the covenant, like, if you break your end of the deal, like, God had rights to his life, like, when he broke his end of it. But in verse 2, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. And, and it's here that God renews the covenant. He gives him the sign of the covenant. He gives him circumcision. And so instead of God taking his whole life, he just asked him to do circumcision. And so um, God in his mercy, although he had every right to Abram's life, he renewed the covenant with him. And what's more, he changed his name. If you look in the following verses, in verse uh, 6, he renews the promise. But in verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Although Abram didn't deserve it, God took him and he said, Abram, it means exalted father, but he changed his name. He added a letter. He said, your name is Abraham. And that name, it means father of, of like a multitude, father of many, father of many nations. There's only one place in God's word where I see this clearer. Only one place. And if you will turn with me there, it's in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. And as we're turning there, I'll just give a quick recap of what's going on here. So Abraham fulfills his word uh, to him. He gives him a son, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though it seems so impossible. Um, although he didn't have faith in him at every point, God renewed that covenant with him. He gave him Isaac. Now we're looking at Isaac's son, Jacob. Does anyone know what Jacob means, the name Jacob? I hear it, deceiver, right? Literally translated, it means heel grabber. Heel grabber. That doesn't mean much to us, right? When he was born, whose heel was he grabbing onto? Esau's, right? His twin. He was grabbing onto his heel. He was like, I want to come out first. And uh, that word in Hebrew, like heel grabber, it's, it, it's like an idiom, right? You know, like an idiom, like pushing up daisies. It doesn't mean pushing up daisies. It means, you know, yeah, it's, it's an idiom. Um, to be a heel grabber, I don't know why they named him this. Maybe they thought it was cute, you know, that he was grabbing his heel. But the idea, it was a supplanter. That's like the, the difficult word. It's supplanter. It's like this mental picture of somebody grabbing someone's heel and tripping them up and taking their place. That's what a, that's what a supplanter is. It's, it's deceptive. It's, it's a deceiver. It's uh, a thief. It's uh, a cheater. That's what that name means. And uh, Esau, he, he valued his birthright very little. You know, he sold it for some food when he was hungry. Um, and then later, by his mother's prompting, he goes to his father and he lies to his blind father's face. He lies to him and he pretends to be Esau. And uh, I'm sure he carried the lie farther than he had expected. He, he just kept on lying and said, no, 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 God blessed me. And that's why I came back so quick. And um, he gave him the blessing. And remember, in this culture, that was everything. The firstborn son to carry on their name and that blessing for them. The, the family uh, inheritance. He became the heir. When Esau came, everything was taken from him. Everything. And so Esau wants to kill, Isaac, um, sorry, excuse me, Jacob. Jacob, he, he runs away. He eventually, uh, he, learns, he learns a lot. Uh, God blesses him. And it finally comes the time to return, to come back home. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 9. He just gets word that his brother is coming with men to kill him. They're coming with an entire army. And he goes to God. He, 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 he tries to do everything he can logistically, and then he goes and prays. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. He reminds God of his promise. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. 
For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He, he quotes back the promises of God. Although he doesn't deserve it, he knows he doesn't deserve it. He's praying to God. If you look down in 22, that night he takes his family and he, go, he, takes, he sends them across the river. He takes all of his belongings, he sends them across the river. And in verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. And in that moment, he, he just thinks back on every mistake of his life. Everything that had led him to that point. All of his belongings, his family, everything God's blessed him with, it's on the other side of that river. And all of it's in jeopardy. He's, he's going to lose it all. The mother with the children. And he's there, and I really believe uh, he was praying. He was praying to God. He was interceding. He knew he didn't deserve it, but he was struggling in that moment. And in that moment, he feels something on his shoulder. He feels a firm grip. He feels his hand on his shoulder. And his first thought, because of his great fear, is that it's Esau, that it's, it's uh, a soldier. It's someone there to kill him. And so he takes this man, and he wrestles with him. In verse 24, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25, now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, now when this, this stranger saw that Jacob wasn't gonna, that he wasn't going to prevail over him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. All in, all in a single moment, this stranger, he reaches out his hand and he touches him, and with just a single touch, he's completely like dislocated, and he, he's, he's crippled in that moment. Verse 26, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In that moment, this, this angel of the covenant, um, we don't have time for this study, but it's actually Jesus himself. Jesus himself that Jacob's wrestling with. He reaches out and touches and he just cripples him in that moment. But in that same moment, Jacob realizes who he's wrestling against. He realizes the person he's physically wrestling against is who he'd been wrestling against in prayer just minutes before, or hours maybe. Um, and he just, he changes from trying to master him to just cling on to him. And Jesus, he says, let me go, the day breaks. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now, there should be a distinction here. We have to realize this wasn't like pride. This wasn't like, I'm, you better do this for me. You know, Jacob didn't, he realized he didn't deserve it. But in complete and utter lack of self-dependence, he casts himself upon this Savior. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. I won't let go of your word. This is the exact faith that we're going to need in the end times. We don't have time to go there now, but in Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7, we find that it's Jeremiah 30. Uh, it's this time at the end, this time of trouble that all will have to go through. Um, and it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And I believe there's a reason God did that, because we can look back at this time and we study the time of Jacob's trouble and we'll realize what will be the thing that gets us through it. In this time, uh, in the end, where everyone will have to decide whose side they're on, if they're going to follow God or if they won't, if they're going to compromise. Uh, in that time, there's only going to be one way through it. You know, there's a beautiful book called Patriarchs and Prophets, and I, I just brought a short quotation from it. It's uh, page 202, and it's the first paragraph on that page. Such will be the experience of God's people in their final struggle with the powers of evil. God will test their faith, their perseverance, their confidence in his power to deliver them. Satan will endeavor to terrify them with the thought that their cases are hopeless. Satan will come to them, he'll point out something to them. He'll point out all of their shortcomings. Um, that their sins have been too great to receive pardon. They will have a deep sense of their shortcomings. And as they review their lives, their hopes will sink. I want to show you something here in Genesis 32. 
um, he holds on to Jesus, right? He's clinging to him. And what's the very next thing out of the mouth of this stranger? Verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said to him, Jacob. Now what this must have appeared to Jacob, like, like knowing what his name means, knowing his own life experience. Um, to him, that was like, a, was like a death sentence, right? You know, he said, what's your name? Like he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He says, what's your name? Heel grabber, supplanter, deceiver, liar, cheater, sinner. That's my name. And he said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, tell me your name. And he says, why do you ask my name? It's like, you already know my name. You already know who I am. You see, in each of these circumstances, we see uh, this crisis of faith, right? God is, he's asking his people to believe in him. And in each time, God doesn't just, he, he's not just there for them, but he, he doesn't just forgive them of what they did before in his mercy, but he also changes who they are. In this Hebrew concept of your name, this name was who you are. It was everything. And truly, that's each of our names. Deceiver, cheater, thief, sinner. And the same thing comes to us. God asks us to have faith in him, to trust him. And, in, and although we don't deserve it, although we deserve it not one bit, he comes to us and he offers us a new name. A new name. That may have been your name before, but the name Israel, it's, it's a name of overcoming. Israel means uh, one who strives with God. It's one who strives with God and overcomes. And that's the name God is willing to offer each and every one of us. That quote, it ends by saying, um, um, these people who have the deep sense of their shortcomings, they will remember. It says, but remembering the greatness of God's mercy and their own sincere repentance, they will plead his promises made through Christ to helpless, repenting sinners. Their faith will not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. They will lay hold of the strength of God as Jacob laid hold of the angel, and the language of their souls will be, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. You know, there's just one last name that I didn't touch on. If you'll humor me for just one more name. Um, it's actually the name of God himself. Uh, God's personal name. There's many names for God. But in Exodus chapter 3, Moses said uh, at the burning bush, he said, they're going to ask which God is sending them. Like, what's God, which God, what name is he going to be known by? What am I going to tell them? What name? What, who am I supposed to say is sending me? And God said, I am that I am. You tell them I am has sent you. And that sounds kind of weird to us, right? The tense. There's three tenses in English, right? In most languages. There's past, there's present, and there's future. Yes. Um, but you know, the interesting about Hebrew is that um, the present tense is a very elusive tense. Like in the Hebrew mind, it's pretty much just two things. There's not even really past or, or future. It's really just a completed action and an incomplete action. An action that's been done, uh, they call it, you know, complete or perfect, I believe, it's past perfect, and then there's imperfect, it has not, ha has not happened yet. And so to Hebrew, that's generally what they say in, throughout the Bible. They say, yeah, for something past, it's already done. Uh, for something in the future, you know, it hasn't been done yet. But that present tense, to them, it doesn't make too much sense, because what is the present, you know? Every moment, the, the present becomes the past, you know? To them, the present is just such a slim, it's just such a slight moment. But you know, for God, God inhabits the present. And I don't want you to misunderstand my point here. Um, we can't go off of our past experiences with God in order to continue on in our relationship with him. Um, yes, we look back on how he's led us. That can strengthen our faith. But we can't live off of yesterday's bread. 
You know, we can't live off of yesterday's experience. And in the same, God doesn't, he doesn't inhabit the future. Like it's not, oh, one day, you know, one day I'll be, you know, good enough to come to Jesus. One day maybe I'll make it. But for God, he wants us to understand something. God inhabits the present. Like it's this moment. And each moment, you know, it becomes the past, but it's this very moment. And in this very moment, I believe God, he, he wants a covenant with each and every one of us here. He wants a relationship with you. He wants, he wants to change you. He wants you to trust him. And seeing how much God offers, why not choose him today? You know, I just want to end by sharing in, in Genesis 11, verse 4, the Tower of Babel. Um, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's what their mission was, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's the first book of the Bible, but you go to the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus promises us something. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And, to, and I will give him a white stone. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. He, Jesus will give us a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. God's got a special name for each and every one of us in heaven. He's going to give us that white stone, and it's got a completely new name. So different from any, um, anything we've experienced before. And so I just want to ask you today as we end, uh, is it your desire to receive that new name from Jesus? Just to be made new. To not have the, the, the um, name of your past, your past experiences, but just to be changed and made new. If that's your desire, then go to God today. Find some time alone, just you and him, and go to him especially uh, especially invite him into your life today. Uh, let's pray. Father, Lord, you are so merciful to us. Lord, I know I am not worthy of the least of the mercies you've shown me. Uh, but Father, I want to thank you that you, uh, you don't look at us how we are or how we've been, but you look at us as how we can be. And so Father, I just pray for a change, uh, a change in my life. Father, I pray for a change in each of the life of my, my brothers and sisters here. Father, make us like you. Give us a new name. Help us to overcome, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.